0: Okay, good morning, everyone. It is great to resume and be back together again. We are now off from uh, Eretz Israel in Israel. They read Acharei Mos last Shabbos. So it'll uh, take a little while till we, uh, we have to figure out how to catch up and uh, get back on the same uh, cycle together. But we have the privilege of reading Parsha's Achary Mos uh, this coming Shabbos. And I was actually looking, I always go on YU Torah to see what topics I spoke of at the last number of years so we don't repeat. And I saw that I never spoke on achrimos at least on YI Torah. And I think the reason is, it's usually uh, Shabbos HaGadol. It's usually right before Pesach. Um, and therefore, uh, we don't usually have class. So, we have the privilege of studying Parshas achrimos together. It's in the Arts Stone Chumash, page 636. And there is so much to talk about, as there is every week, but in this rich parsha. Our parsha begins after uh, the death of Aaron's two sons. Vay'daber Hashem HaMasheh Aharimos, shnei b'nei Aaron. We're about to be introduced to the laws of Yom Kippur. And Aaron, as the Kohen Gadol, his pivotal, is central role in the performance of the service of Yom Kippur. And the topic is introduced to us in the context of Aaron's loss, the loss of his sons Nadav and Avihu, a topic that we studied together um, in depth. And here in the beginning of our parsha, the commentators all struggle to try to identify why specifically are the laws of Yom Kippur... Communicated or articulated in that context, why is it acharei mos shnei Ben Aaron? What is the correlation between the death or the recovery, the notion of an acharei mos Aaron's ability to come back from the death of his sons? We know his heroic vayidom Aaron. We know Aaron's heroic silence—a silence that's ambiguous. We don't know the nature of his silence. We know that Aaron was silent. And now Aharemos, he's able to come back to put one foot in front of the other and to be able to continue. And he successfully leads the people in the performance of the Yom Kippur service. Here the Torah delineates exactly uh, what happens with the uh, Yom Kippur service. We have the whole process of drawing lots and putting them on the goats. And one is pushed over a cliff and the other one's offered to Hashem. The idea that they have to be the exact same and the only thing that distinguishes between them is a goral, is a lottery. And the idea that in our own lives, with all our initiative and with all the effort we take, ultimately we are subject to the lottery, so to say, of Hashem, who ultimately is pulling the strings in our lives. The, uh, the offering of the Ketorahs that was done in the Kodesh Hakodashim. Um, this was a debate between the Tztukim and the Prushim, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, about where the incense was, was offered. We have the um, conclusion of the service, and then the Torah is telling us that every year we are to observe this, even when we don't have the uh, Avodah. It's an amazing thing. The way we experience Yom Kippur today is categorically different than the way they observed it in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. The time of the Beit HaMikdash, while certainly um, atonement and repentance were part of the experience and process, the Jewish people were largely spectators to what happened. It's, uh, it's only now that we don't have a on HaMikdash that we all experience in Kippur the same. We're led by the Shliach Tzibur, but we all participate in the davening for the entire length of the day. The Torah here delineates that when the Kohen Gadol steps forward in order to achieve atonement and recites the confession on behalf of the people, he does so on behalf of himself, his family, and the people. And if you follow the Musaf, of, uh, of Yom Kippur, you see that we progress first, he atones for himself, then for his family, and then for all of the people, and we bow down each time. And the the you see the development, the progression represented in the Musaf itself. If you look on page 638, you see where the Torah tells us this. The Aaron is Parachatas. Aaron brings the uh, the offering, the sin offering. bado, He atones for himself. And he atones for his whole house. Why is he? And you see on the bottom of the page again: the kri'vah is parachat asher lo, v'chipper bado v'ad beiso, v'shacharis parachat asher lo. And then later on the next page, you see pasuk gedayin: uva'omoy bevolachaper bekodesh ad beiso, v'chipper bado u'ad beiso u'ad kol kahal yisrael. First, he atones; he repairs; he improves himself. Then he repairs. And then he advocates on behalf of his family and only then the Jewish people. Why are they separated out? Aren't his family included in Kahal Yisrael? Aren't they part of the Kol Kahal Yisrael, all the Jewish people? And why is he distinguished from his family? Isn't he part of the count of his family? Why is he separated from his family? Why is his family separated from the Jewish people? So the Mepharsham point out very beautifully here the notion that if you want to have great influence, the answer is not to start out towards in, it's to start in towards out. If one wants to be a source of influence to their surroundings, the first step in that influence is to look in the mirror, to improve themselves. The Cohen can't represent others before he first repairs himself. It would be hypocritical, it would be duplicitous, disingenuous to say, I'm here to advocate, to atone for my family. What do you mean for my family? What about you? You can't, Inspire or be a source of influence to your family if you're not walking the walk. The Gemara Bab Matziah says, Kishot atzmecha, kishot achirim. First examine yourself, and only then examine others. We all know people who have countless opinions about everyone around them. They see the flaws in everyone around them. They offer unsolicited criticism, sometimes constructive, often destructive, to everyone around them. So Chazal come along and say, Gemara Sanhedrin, Kshot Atzmacha, first fix yourself. Kshod, examine. Take a look at yourself. Kishot Acherim. And only then would you be in a position to help others. But Shem Shonafal Ursh has a great Peshat. The word Kshod in the Gemara, the literal meaning is, examine, reflect on, take a look. But it says reverse, it's instructive to look at the Berich Shmei. We say, Monday, Thursday, Shabbos, we take the Torah out. In Aramaic, we say the Berich Shmei. A very powerful uh, very powerful section. The Zohar promises us that if we say Bruch with Kavanah, all kinds of bracha uh, is uh, is achieved in our lives. The word Kishot appears in a series in uh, in towards the end of Bruch shimei. We say uh, this is Kishot. This is Kishot. That's Kishot. What does Kishot mean in that context? In Bruch Keshot means true. It means truth. It says Rav al Ffolgers, be honest and truthful with yourself before you're critical with others. When it comes to ourselves, we tend to gloss over, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, erase the shortcomings, blend in the flaws with the greater good. And when it comes to others, we see the flaws, they are much more bold and stand out. So kishot atzmach, aachakach kishot acher, means be honest with yourself before you're running to be so honest and eager with others. There's an amazing quote, they quote it in the name of Rav Yisrael Salanter, others say it in the name of the Chavetz Chaim, but if you Google it, you'll find that it actually originates on the tomb of an Angelican bishop in Westminster Abbey who lived a thousand years ago. It wasn't Rav Yisrael Salanter, and it's not the Chavetz Chaim. I'm sorry to break it to all of the Svarim who attribute it to them. And the quote is the following When I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change, so I shortened my sights somewhat and decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me. But alas, they would have none of it. And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realize, if I had only changed myself first, then by example I would have changed my family. And from their inspiration and encouragement, I would then have been able to better my country. And who knows, I may have even changed the world. So, first the Kohen Gadol has to represent Ba'do, va'ad Beso, understands this lesson not on his deathbed but first we have to change ourselves and only then can we influence the family and an inspired family can impact a community and change the world so that is the Kohen Gadol and the Avoda of Yom Kippur that is the beginning of our Parsha Parsha then continues with the uh, what happens with the um, offerings outside of the Mishkan top of page 646 what happens if you offer outside? In other words, shechita. What happens if you shecht an animal to be able to consume it? Not shechita, I'm sorry. This is a person who offers something outside the proper designated place, namely the Mishkan or the Beis HaMikdash. The Nechorash Somebody who brings an offering But outside of the central place The authoritative place of Jewish offerings Someone who does so Such a person is cut off from his people Why? The Torah here is trying to create a central system of worship if everyone had the opportunity, if everyone was entitled to bring their offering and do their service on their own Weber grill in their backyard, it would destroy, it would dissipate community. To create a sense of community, of people and of nationhood, you have to have a central place of worship and of service that brings us together. We're successful in doing so even today, even without the base of Begdash and But at the base of that mountain, at the Kotel, Jews of every type, of every background, non-Jews come by having a central place of holiness of concentrated holiness and of service it brings us together and creates community and nationhood and a person who violates that who says what do I need to go to Harabai's? What do I ever need to visit the Kotel? I'm good to go. I'll offer a sacrifice in my backyard. I can do it on my own. I have the instructions, the manual. What do I need to go there? Such a person, what's the consequence, says the Torah? They're cut off from their people. And similarly, Now we, the Torah repeats this again in the next context. The may the Why does the Torah use this language? The word kares, which means to be cut off, the word kares is to be cut off mikarev amav from the context of the people. So Rabbi Salavitchik, in the great Rabbi Salavitchik Chumash, says the following: If man wants to defeat death and scoff at nihility. He must somehow elevate himself above this order of meaningless existence and come close to the order of eternity. In other words, how do we gain immortality? We live in this world, it's fleeting, we're all going to die. How do we achieve immortality? How do we transcend? To gain a pass to everlasting reality, he must represent God. He must remember God, become his shliach, his ambassador. He must carry his message and convey it through action. He must become the medium through which God addresses himself to the world, the instrument of revelation. The ideal of prophecy must find at least partial realization in all of us. This is possible only if the individual Jew includes himself or herself in Knesset Yisrael, the community which was burdened at the dawn of history with the divine ethos, God's word and ethical system, whose historic existence is unconditionally consecrated to one goal only, the fulfillment of the covenant through a commitment to a singular modus existentis, a mode of existence willed by God. Only when the individual joins this community may he or she lay claim to a deathless existence. Only through identification with the origin may one gain eternal life. It's interesting the term kares, writes Rabbi cutting off, which according to our sages refers to severance from the transcendental order of existence, is mostly linked in the Bible with the expression me'adas Yisrael or me'kerev amah from the community of Israel or from among the people. Judaism identifies the termination of existence with cutting off the self from the community for the individual strikes roots in the eternity only by abiding within its confines. It's an amazingly powerful idea. Kares, the harshest and the most severe of penalties is me'kerev amah or me'adas Yisrael. It's the consequence of seeing yourself apart different, separated from the community and from the people and our national and collective destiny and that's why in the context of this punishment the person who brings sacrifices, offerings on their own, they don't need Yushalayim the Beis Mikdash, they don't need the Mishkan they don't need to go to shul I may write about to so decide what I'm going to write about this week but the growing idea of splintering Minyanim, you know who needs to go to shul, we can make a Minyan in our own neighborhood in our own living room why bother going to shul And then Shul uh, becomes an emptier place. And what happens from there? Where does that lead to? And and I grew up in such a minion, but it wasn't a breakaway minion, it was a convenience minion. It was a mile away from the Shul, and it was done with the permission of the Shul, and it was integrated into the Shul, and followed the policies, and was canceled at times to be coordinated with the Shul. Danny knows the sweat minion. So, and I'm not making a statement of judge disaboutment right now, I may do so this weekend but I'm not right now Um, but all I'm all I'm pointing out is that in all of our decisions we have to we have to see the value there is a notion of a value of community there's not just Torah and mitzvot per se but there's Torah and mitzvot in the context of community what's the value of community this is our community thank God has not suffered from this syndrome but I speak to my colleagues and I see with my own eyes communities all over most prominently in New York, where the Shtiebel Syndrome. Every block is a Shtiebel. People aren't members of shuls. They're not uh, con- con- connected with community. This is, what do you need a shul for? What do you need community for? We're blessed to be one of the few communities left, which is a real kehila, a real edah. It's a tremendous uh, bracha. And that's what the Torah is telling us. Don't experience self-inflicted kares. If you separate yourself from the community, then the consequence is care of Amo. Beautiful insight of Rabbi Salavetri. Torah tells us in this context the prohibition of eating blood. Not only are you forbidden from eating blood, but blood is uh, such a symbol of life that we cover the blood. There's an obligation to cover the blood. Kisoy Adam. Shulchan says that if you have no earth, no soil available to be able to perform Kisoy <speaking in Hebrew> then you can't do Shechita. You can't do shechita on an animal which would demand adam. You have to do it on an animal which would not require adam. That's how significant adam is. There's a great discussion in Lamdas among the Rishonim. Is adam the completion of shechita or is it its own mitzvah? Is covering the blood part of the obligation of slaughter? First you slaughter, then you cover the blood, but it's one Obligation, one mitzvah, whereas covering the blood, a second corollary to that first mitzvah and they each bring evidence in their own in their own way. Right? So the evidence that it's part of the same mitzvah is that if you don't have earth available to cover the blood, you can't do shrieta. If there were two separate mitzvahs, so we'll do the one mitzvah shritah and the other mitzvah Kisadam you're exempt, you can't do. But if you don't have the if it, if it means you can't do the shita, it shows they're all part of one mitzvah. Yes. But you make a separate problem? so that's part of evidence that's two separate mitzvahs so there's a whole discussion in lambdas is it part of one mitzvah is it two mitzvahs we now get up to arayas which is the conclusion of our parsha, and really takes us through the end of Sefer Vayikra we no longer are we dealing with the sacrifices and service in the Mishkan. But now we get into the laws of forbidden relationships and promiscuity and how to achieve holiness and sanctity. This is the section we're going to look at more closely in a moment. You're familiar with it. We read it on Mincha on Yom Kippur. So our parasha began with the laws of Yom Kippur and it continues with the reading that we do on Yom Kippur, which is a funny reading. On the holiest day of the year, when we're all behaving, we read about the poorest behavior possible, the most uh, lascivious behavior possible why are we reading uh, why are we reading about these forbidden relationships about Arias specifically on Yom Kippur, is a question I leave for Yom Kippur, ok so let's go back now and take a look at the Psukim we're going to study, Perek Yerches Pasuk Aleph Perek Yerches, Pasuk Aleph chapter 18, verse 1, page 648 in the Artskroll Stone Chumash By Moshe God spoke to Moshe, Daber Al Ben Yisrael, Yamarta, speak to the Jewish people and tell them, Ani Hashem Elokechem. That's a bizarre thing for God to ask Moshe to tell the Jewish people in the 18th chapter of Sefer Vayikra. Moshe, I want you to turn to the people and I'd like you to tell them something very important, a very, very important message. I want you to tell them, Ani Hashem Elokechem. I am the Lord, your God. Do they not know that by now? Have they not been introduced to the Rebun Shalom? Do they not have an exposure or experience with Him until this point? Ten plagues, a splitting of a sea, receiving the Torah at Har Sinai, Egel, forgiveness, mitzvahs being delivered to them one by one, the details of the building of the Mishkan, the celebration of the inauguration of the Mishkan, and now after all of that, God says, I got a message for the people, Ani Hashem Tell them, I am the Lord your God. So Rashi already tells us that Moshe, that God is not reminding them of his role in a vacuum. He's reminding them of the role as a preface, as an introduction to what's about to come. It says, Rashi, it's reminiscent, it's a throwback. These words, should remind us of the opening words of Matan Torah, you accepted upon yourself my sovereignty, my dominion. So since you stood at Sinai and you accepted my dominion, now I want you to accept my ordinances. Now I want you to accept my rules. God knew that in the time of Ezra, when the Jews were living above El, the Jews would fall prey. What would be the source, what would have been our Achilles heel in the time of Ezra? It was specifically Arios. It's the area of man, generic man's greatest temptation. How many powerful, brilliant, successful people have we seen fall and fall from grace and fall mightily because of this area of temptation and desire. No, who is the one who's demanding this of you? This is not arbitrary. This is not social contract or social pressure. Remember you stood at Sinai? Remember I'm the Lord God who created the entire universe and runs the world? I'm the one who can give you punishment and I'm the one who could mete out reward? I'm the one who's telling you that this is the behavior that's right for you. This is the definition of morality and ethics. The morality and ethics in the section we're about to read, and our generation needs this so desperately, The morality and ethics are not determined by state legislature or federal law, they're not determined by the whims of the day, how do you set up bathrooms, and how do you define gender, and what defines relationships, and I don't mean to be, um, to, to minimize these are issues that are real and that hurt people, that have to be dealt with with great sensitivity, and as a community we have to deal with them with great sensitivity, but ultimately we have to remember that morality is not subject objective it's not relative it's absolute there is a voice, there is a source of this morality and it's from the creator of the universe. And if we believe we stood at Sinai, if we believe he's the Boreolam and he created the world, then he also delivered to us the boundaries of morality, of how the world is intended to be. So in our pursuit of them, we have to do it with great sensitivity and with great love and recognize we're dealing with real people with real anguish and real challenges and real suffering. However, we always can't, we have to remember and come back to the fact that despite that, we have to act with sensitivity, but ultimately, if we're not careful in defining our perspective through the prism of Torah and the Ribbono Shalom, it is a very, very, very slippery slope. And you know where we end up? Turn the page. Or don't turn the page, actually. I'm looking at my Mikros Kedolos. Stay on the same page if you're looking at the Arts Scroll. You know where we end up? The next Passock. You know where we end up? If you're not careful, if we don't remember, we stood at Sinai, if we neglect the fact that the Rebun Shalom is the arbiter of morality and ethics, the sole arbiter of morality and ethics, then you know if we enter the slippery slope of socially and subjectively determined morality, you know where we end up? back in egypt if not geographically spiritually and metaphysically we end up back in the moral depravity on the lowest levels of of egypt google rome and nero go take a look at how ancient rome lived morally and we are considered to have progressed so much since then to have become so much more sophisticated and you know what we've turned it around we're regressing now The debates that we're seeing in the last 10 years were things that were unimaginable 20 years ago. And the arguments, debates now, you're not going to be able to go to the bathroom in peace with the same gender as you and the law and your children are going to go off to the bathroom and be sharing it with... It's unbelievable the direction that we're heading in. And we are now barbaric and archaic and cruel if we want to remain true and steadfast to the traditional values and morals as depicted in our holy Torah and from, and from Hashem. And as difficult and challenging as it is, and again with great sensitivity and with great care in how we articulate these things, But if we're not careful we are going to end up right back where God took us out of we just finished a yuntif, celebrating God's having extracted us from that place and having given us our own moral code a higher moral life and if we neglect it and we're not careful we will end up right back there and that's what Rashi says the Egyptians, where they came from, and Canaan, where they're headed, are the most morally depraved, decayed, decadent, lascivious, licentious culture of anywhere on earth. And the place where the Jewish people were in Egypt was worse than any other. What was that place? Sif points out, what was that place? Goshen. Eretz Goshen. Timlokane, Shaft Ba'lamali. Torah says, you're going to end up back in Egypt, the place that you were. And Rashi says, the place that you were was worse than all other places. And what is the place that they were? Where did they live in Egypt? Which neighborhood? Which suburb? Gosh. They lived in Goshen. The Kliyakar has a big problem with Rashi. He says, what do you mean? They chose Goshen because it was a suburb distance from the metropolis. Goshen was chosen when Yosef scouted it out before his father came down because Goshen was the place they would be most protected and secure. So rationale is saying that Goshen was the worst. Goshen was the Jewish neighborhood. What do you mean Goshen was the worst? So the Kleyakar has a discussion of that we're not going to look at, but you can look if you want to, if you want to see what the uh, what the Kliyakar says. So at the end of this clear. look at the last paragraph of the Kliakar. What does the Torah says? God says, I'm the Lord your God. You met me at Har Sinai. You met me beforehand, but you heard my voice at Har Sinai. You know I control the world. You know I created the world. You know that I have the blueprint for how to lead the most meaningful and sacred life in the world. And I'm telling you, don't imitate Mitzrayim. I took you out of Mitzrayim to live a holier, higher life. Don't imitate that. And what's Asher Yishav Temba? So the Kleacher says, what's the way that you imitated Mitzrayim? Asher Yishav Temba. That you wanted to stay there. That you asked to be there. And the Jewish people in Sefer Babinbar are going to ask to go back to Mitzrayim again. They're struggling. Right? God took the Jews out of Mitzrayim. But now it's up to the Jews to take Mitzrayim out of themselves. it's harder it's harder to take Mitzrayim out of them than it was to take them out of Mitzrayim we studied this on Shabbos HaGadol three or four years ago when we studied at Lent the Prohibition three places the Torah tells us it's forbidden to go back and live in Egypt three places and we asked a series of questions the Radvaz lived in Egypt the Ramam lived in Egypt first Ravavadiyah lived in Egypt how could they live in Egypt? isn't it a violation? so Rishonim, Achronim all have all kinds of answers how or why or exemptions to that Prohibition But we studied what's the nature of that prohibition. And we saw the idea is not just geographically don't go back to Egypt, but it means spiritually, morally, don't go back to Egypt. That's where God took us out. Egypt was a place of superstition. I'm not going to give my annual rant about the Shabbos is challah, but it's unbelievable. It's mamish unbelievable that on the Shabbos after Pesach, Pesach is all about, God says, I took you out of a place of sorcery and superstition and paranoia and astrology for you to worship me. That's why I took you out. Don't worship superstition. I took you out to worship me. Davin to me, do mitzvahs for me. I'm the one who controls the world. And how do we thank Hashem the Shabbos after Pesach where we celebrate it? Yes, Hashem, you took us out. We're here to worship you. We love you. We're counting Sefer Somer. What do we do? We stick a key in the challah and we think that if I have a key in the challah, my parnassah will be great. Aye, Davin with Kavana? Eh. Show up in shul on time that Shabbos? Eh. Wouldn't it be great if the Shabbos after Pesach the minag was to not talk in shul? The minag on the Shabbos after Pesach the minag on the Shabbos after Pesach was to be on time. To dabble with extra kavana. The school of on the Shabbos after Pesach is avoda Hashem. So instead we stick a shlissel in the challah and if you stick the key of your front door in the challah shlissel challah, oh yeah, your Parnasson will be so great. Now, I'm open to eating the shlissel challah. I've had shlissel challah before. I'm fine with shlissel chala. As long as you realize that the shlissel and the chala is to remind you that the chala we eat, the lechem mishnah and shabbos, the zecher l'mon, and the man fell from Hashem, And just like the man fell from Hashem, our Parnass is from Hashem. So when I put the shlissel on the challah, that Suda, I won't speak Lashon Hara, I'll share Divrei Torah, I'll sing Zmiros, I'll bench with Kavana, because the shlissel on the challah reminds me the challah is like the man, and I remember the Ebeshter, the Ribbon HaShelolam, and now my Parnassah comes from him. If that's your shlissel challah, be gazunt. I'm fine with your shlissel challah. But sadly, and you see all over social media, everyone's talking They just i got to stick a key in the Challah. If I do stick a key in the Challah, I won't have Parnassa this year. And other than the key in the Challah, it's business as usual. It's exactly why Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. I took you out to stop following superstition. That's why I took you out. It's unbelievable. And what's the other reason I took you out? To give you morality. To give you a moral and and uh, and uh, to give you a code of morality and ethics, what are you listening to? Other people. That's why I took you out. U'sigmayseretz Kenan continues the kluyakar. Ha'inushilumashim as Yisrael Hashem Masu be'eretz hakadoshah, asher ha'isa chaviv al avos. Ve'hema Masu ba'chayutzroch geshborchav yim shem ba'korchem. This is uh, this is prophetic, says the kluyakar. K'mas eretz Kenan, asher ani mevi eschem shama. Don't follow Egypt. That you, I show you that you wanted to stay there, and don't follow Canaan. That I have to drag you there. What does it mean? It's prophetic. The Chayaker says God is alluding to the fact that they don't want to go. They wanted to return to Egypt. They didn't want to go to Israel. They were scared from the report of the Miraglim, and God had to drag them there. What was the Misa? That I had to drag you there. So don't follow Egypt, I had to drag you out. Don't follow Canaan, that I had to drag you there. Follow me. That's why I took you out, is to follow me and to shape your vision of the world, your moral and ethical code, dafka, through me. Okay, so let's finish the possibility. Do not follow their chukim. Says Rashi, Rashi says, what does it mean? The Chukim... Tartios Vatstadios, their stadiums and their theaters. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy recreational activity, but don't define, don't turn the Jewish culture into the culture of those around us. We have to contribute to the world, and we should benefit from the beauty of what the world has to offer us and this beautiful art, music, culture that the world has to offer us, but it has to all be absorbed and integrated through the prism of Torah to filter that which is consistent and that which is inconsistent that which cannot work together. And that's the Kodesh Baruch Hu's message introduced by the words Ani Hashem Elokeichem. Let's go back and look at the Orachayim HaKadosh. says the Orachayim Pasuk Beis. Orachayim Reb Chaim Ben Daber Va Pasuk Beis. Daber He asks a series of questions here. Tzoruch Ladas. Lama Kefa Lomar Daber V'amarta. Anytime the Kodesh the Orachayim rather always asks this. Daber O B'nei Yisrael Speak to the Jewish people and say to them. It's redundant. Why does it say Daber Via Marta? And what is God adding when He says, I am the Lord? We don't know already. Says the Urchaim, Iker Sefer. God says, don't follow Kamasa Eretz Mitzrayim. But he doesn't spell out what the Masa is. What is it we're not supposed to do like they did in Egypt? Wear their clothing? Listen to their music? Use their names? What is it exactly we're not supposed to do? It's missing, says the Eretz And why do it's redundant? If Canaan and Mitzrayim did the same thing, then just say, don't imitate one of them and you'll know. Why does God designate, don't imitate Egypt, you know, the Egypt that you lived in. Says the Archaim. is there another Egypt? Is there a second Egypt, the one we didn't live in? Otzia in Eretz Canaan, va'mashani mevi shenir shi'ish acheres, and and don't follow the Canaan. You know the one I'm bringing you to. Is there another Eretz Canaan that God's not bringing them to? V'nir shi'ish acheres v'lo yodanu zu azu v'lu yiloy yeshetir Eretz Canaan acheres. Kevin shen you do a minayin you maser no don. Tzavas aleihem v'nira. So the Orachaim asks all these questions. Number one, why does it say? Number one, why does it say? Number two, why does God have to reintroduce himself? Number three, it says, don't do as they did. But what specifically is it that they did that we're not supposed to do? Number, whatever we're up to. Four, what does it mean, the Mitzrayim that you lived in, as opposed to the one we didn't live in? Number five, what do you mean the Kanaan I'm taking you to, as opposed to another Canaan? What's going on over here, asks the Orachaim. And then, what does it the fact that the Torah is going to continue from here directly into the laws of promiscuity and licentiousness, the laws of illicit relations. Arayas, what do you see? Don't defile yourself with all this. nitmu so, what is the answer to all of this? What's the behavior of Egypt and Canaan that we are to avoid imitating or emulating? Let me raise the temperature. I see icicles growing on some of you. Thank you. What is the behavior that we're supposed to avoid imitating? It's exactly what the Parsha, what the Torah continues with, namely are the laws of Arias. It's our morality, sexual morality, gender morality, marriage morality. All of that is what's supposed to be defined by Hashem and our Torah and not be influenced by those around us. And that's the mitzvah the Torah is talking about. Hinei continues the Yorchaim. Ki kol ha-mitzvos adam All the mitzvahs God gave us are mitzvahs that we are able and capable of withstanding, of observing, of doing. V'yata atzma la la asosam. And we have the capacity to um, condition ourselves to observe God's will. We have the capacity to condition our will to be consistent or parallel with God. Zulas mitzvah's precious arayas hu davr shenavshah shaladam the ve'onah sosso aleim la'asosam It's a very bold statement by the Orchayim. When it comes to every single mitzvah in the Torah, when it comes to every everything in the Torah, we have the capacity to condition our, um, our attitude, our will, our desire to that which Hashem wants. So that we only want kosher, we don't even desire non-kosher. We only want this, we don't even desire that. We have the ability to conquer and mold and shape our Yetzirah in every area except one. The Yetzirah for sexuality, that power, Freud was not entirely wrong, that power is something which can never fully be conquered. It is pervasive, it remains. It's something which is very powerful and strong. The two things that a person has to do in order to conquer this area are we have to be protective of what we look at and protective of what we think about, of of fantasy. One has to be careful of the images that they take in, and careful about where they allow their mind to wander. And it's only if they're careful with those two things. Even if you conquer your, your fantasy, but if you're not careful with what you look at, then it won't be long until you haven't conquered your fantasy. So a person has to be careful with Shmiras I am, a person has to be careful, Shmira and I am what they're looking at. As well, be mindful of avoiding thinking about inappropriate things. So we have the ability to conquer every Yetzir Hara, except for this. Unless you engage in the formula of these two things. My eight-year-old daughter, now nine-year-old daughter, has this uh, journal she got as a gift. You know, little kid, you fill in what's your favorite color, what's your favorite this, what your best friends, uh, you know, all these little things. So, I'm not sure why this was included in a journal for kids, but it asks the question, who's your arch nemesis? So she brings it to Yechaveh and she says, "Mommy, what's an arch nemesis?" So Yechaveh says, "Well, Tamima, you don't have any, but it means an enemy. Who's your enemy? Who's your arch nemesis?" Okay, so she runs off with of the journal to continue to play with it. Fine. Yechaveh finds it later. She looks in the journal, and what did my nine-year-old write? Who is her arch nemesis? The Yetzer Hara. No. It's unbelievable. Oh, what Naches! What a gishma. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's great. Isn't that great? So the Chaim says. That arch nemesis can be conquered in every area except this, unless we are very conscientious and mindful, and only then do we have a chance. And this is a long here or chaim. You see, he goes on. He says it. But I want to skip to where he comes back to answering his questions. I'm sorry. Go back. And this is God telling us. How can a natural, normal, healthy person overcome this Yetzihara? God wants everyone equally to be moral in this area. He wants us all to seek to be holy in this area. What is he saying? Don't imitate Egypt asher yashafta Asher yashafta means, don't be like in Egypt, the place of your fantasy, because you saw the way they lived. It was readily accessible. It was exposed. It was available. You saw the moral decadence. You saw the way it was happening, right on the streets. Don't be like that. Because when you start thinking and remembering about about that, then you have no shot at defeating this yetsahara. And similarly, Eretz Canaan, the place I'm taking you to, if you're not mindful and conscious of protecting and guarding what you see and what you think about, you can never overcome this yetsahara for arayos. And the yetsahara for arayos is the downfall of man, and woman just as we've seen in our time, powerful politicians, athletes, successful people, intellectuals, academics, who could not control this Yetzirah, and despite all their achievement and success, it absolutely undermined them and destroyed them. So if we're not careful in this area, kamaisa eretz Mitzayim and kamaisa eretz Kenan, then the rest unravels. And the rest, according to the Yor Haim, falls apart from there. Rabbi Salavechik. Let's go back to the Rabbi Salavechik first. for a second. Rabbi Salvechik says, The contrast between Israel and the rest of mankind is emphasized to an extreme in this section. The key message of this particular passage in the Torah is the introductory verse Israel is separate and distinct from the nations surrounding her. We must uphold this unique identity. Under no conditions are we to consider assimilation. Egypt and Canaan are mentioned specifically because these nations represent the two poles of secular civilization in biblical times. Egypt was the most urbanized and technologically advanced civilization of the time, while Canaan was pastoral and primitive. Torah emphasizes here that as different as they were from each other, neither of these fundamentally immoral societies serve as role models for us. This is the Torah's mandate. The Jewish people are to be distinct, distinguished. We are to be exceptional. In these areas, and while we benefit from and contribute to the beautiful world and societies in which we live, we do not define our morality or ethical code from them. Okay, continuing. Let's keep going. So don't observe and mold and shape your culture and society based on theirs, but rather observe Hashem's Mishbatim. And Hashem's chukim, lalaches pahem, to walk in them. This is the origin of the word halacha. When we talk about halacha, Jewish law, halacha does not translate to Jewish law. Halacha is lalaches, halicha. It's how one walks through life. It is the guide for how to live life. lalaches pahem, halacha. Ani Hashem elokeichem. Ushmartem is chukosai v'smishpatai, observe my chukim and my mishpatim, asher yaseh usam ha'adam v'chai bahem. If a person... Keeps them. Then You live through them. Ani Hashem. What's going on over here in this section? What's going on over here? I don't even know where to start. Let's start with Rabbi Salavitch Chomish. Says Rabbi Salavitch. Generally, chukim. Right, we, The Torah here and the Mephorshim pick up on it. First it began and said, don't, do, don't follow Mitzrayim and Kanaan, but rather, Es Mishpatai Es Chukosai. In the very next pasuk, Es Chukosai Es Mishpatai. Why did we switch the order? And what's the difference between Mishpatim and Chukim? Says the Rav. Generally, Chukim seem to be irrational. If not for the divine imperative, we would never observe them. We assume a divine purpose and value, but we cannot fathom them. Mishpatim, on the other hand, reflect cultural and humanistic considerations. Yet the force of the divine command applies to both, demanding observance and unqualified commitment. The chok may be said to possess two characteristics. The first is its universal immutability. The fact that a chok is independent of situational factors, changing philosophies or ideologies, or shifting practical and economic conditions. All these have no effect or bearing on a chok, which persists and retains its value under all circumstances, at all times and everywhere. Obviously, only an absolute faith in God as the legislator of the chok could motivate such acceptance. So a chok, whereas a mishpat, is an ordinance, and you might think it's not. All mishpatim come from Hashem as well, but you might think it's situational. It depends on where and when you live. But a chok, a chok, is immutable. It is Hashem's will, without even our comprehension of it, and it's binding at all times. Etymologically, the word chok, chakak, ches kuf kuf, signifies the act of carving, engraving, making incisions in a hard surface such as stone or metal. Several verses support this meaning. Behold, I have chakosich, I have graven you upon the palms of my hand, Yeshaya. Oh, that my words were vayuchaku, engraven with an iron pen, comes from Eov. Such engravings are protected against the erosion of time and the elements. Used in religious law, the term signifies that a chok is characterized by perpetual validity, is engraven in the rock forever. Chok implies eternity. It is not a temporary regulation. Nature's laws are also chukim, unalterable and universal. The same legislator instituted both systems of law, governing physical nature as well as man's deportment. The Torah uses the word chok in regard to nature. When he gave to the sea, he decreed chuko, and the water should not transgress, when he appointed bichuko, the foundations of the earth. Nature is not capricious. It unfailingly abides by God's laws, even as man should in the human realm. There are no exceptions or surprises. Nature is reliable and predictable and its laws are universally valid. So that's all the first, the first character trait of a chok is like nature, it's immutable, it's all binding at all times. The second characteristic of the chok is incomprehensibility. It demands the surrender of one's mind and suspension of one's thinking. It is a total commitment precisely because it requires an addiction of one's reasons. The commitment of a child to his parents, however fervent, is not total. It is rooted in the family setting and has many qualifications and reservations. A parent commitment to a child is instinctive and total. It is irrational and therefore not contingent or conditional. The reason for the chok remains a mystery. Indeed, the chok is often contested by one's thinking mind. Although man is a rational being, the chok demands that he violate his reason. And he goes on, it's much longer here, but that's the difference between a chok and a mishpah. We're bound by both. And it's only when we observe both that here the Torah says, V'chai b'hem. What does it mean when you observe both? Then, V'chai b'hem. What does it mean, V'chai b'hem? So look at Rashi. V'chai b'hem. Li'olam haba. If we in fact embrace, if we make our lives conform, halacha, v'telchuba, if we walk, lalachas b'hem, if we walk in the ways of Hashem, then we merit, la'olam haba, the world to come. Shimtoma ba'olam the reward's not in this world. We're all going to die. Where is the vachai b'hem? Where do you achieve eternal life? Eternal life is achieved only in the world to come. Ani Hashem. on Mashao, Mishar. And who can make the promise of giving you immortality, reward in the world to come? Only Ani Hashem. Only the eternal being. Only Hashem Himself. Only Hashem can give that reward. So what does it mean, v'chai Bahem? So Rashi P'shat is in Olam Haba. However, Chazal learned differently. Chazal learned that what do you see from here, the Gemara and Yuma, that pikuach nefesh is docha, skola torakula, that if there's a conflict between our observing halacha and our well-being and staying alive, which one supersedes which, it's more important we violate halacha and we preserve our health. Why? Because the the whole purpose of Torah was to give meaning and purpose to life. If observing Torah is going to cost you life, then that's undermining the whole purpose. So you neglect Torah in that circumstance and preserve your life. Of course, there are three famous exceptions. The Gimel Yahari V'al Yavor, Gilei HaRai, and Avod Idolatry, illicit relations, and murder. But other than the three exceptions, 610, which translate to many more, we violate Allah to preserve our life. Why? Chazal learned from this Pasuk. the Bahem, the whole purpose is for us to live through them. B'Salveitchik writes about this. This law is the watchword of Judaism. The teachings of Torah do not oppose the laws of life and reality, for they, were they to clash with this world, were they to negate the value of concrete uh, physiological, biological existence, they would contain not mercy, loving kindness and peace, but vengeance and wrath. Even if there is only a doubtful possibility a person's life is in danger, one renders a lenient decision. And as long as one is able to discover some possible danger to life one may use that doubt to render a lenient decision. And here the Rav continues, he quotes his grandfather, Reb Chaim of Brisk, disagreed with the legal view. You know, many people on Yom Kippur say that if you're in a life-threatening situation, and you have to eat, then you eat less than a Kazaias and less than bechdei achilas pras, where We we tell you, eat less than a shaklas every nine minutes, because at least then you're not violating on a biblical level. And Reb Chaim, and he said, absolutely not. He instructed those who were taking care of a sick individual to serve him a regular meal just as they would on other days. When my father was about to travel to Rasin, a town close to Kovna, to take up a rabbinical post, Reb Chaim took him aside and said, I command you to follow my view regarding a sick person in danger on Yom Kippur because it is is an absolute halachic truth. Right? Reb Chaim used to say there was a story where there was a sick person it was dark in the room the doctor needed a candle and and, uh, Reb Chaim said to someone, light a candle. And they were hesitant, you know, there's enough light, can't you see? So Reb Chaim said, I'll light it myself. And they said, no, aren't you makbit on, on Shabbos? Are you machmir on Shabbos? He said, no, i machmir on pikuach nefesh. So, that's, a, Rav quotes this tradition from his uh, grandfather, and that's a consistent with this pasuk of of vichai bahem, that we achieve life um, through Torah. Torah gives meaning to life. If observing Torah is going to come at the expense of life, for that moment, we neglect Torah and we preserve our we preserve our lives. The, um, the question is, which is it? On the one hand, the rabbis say him teaches you how to live in this world. It's olam hazeh that you preserve your life rather than keep Torah in that circumstance. Rashi and Unklosir also writes v'yechay bahon l'chay alma. Rashi says it's talking about olam haba. Is it olam haba or is it? Or is it this world? Which one Which one is it? The Slanah of Shalom Noach Brzovsky has a beautiful piece about this. And he says to reconcile the answer to both, V'chai Bahem is teaching us how to do Torah and mitzvot in this world, that if we do it in this way, we're achieving a piece of the world to come. And what is that way? The Bahem. The Bahem, Chai is the root of the word chiyas. You know, we have a Yiddish word, chiyas. It means to be alive, to be vibrant, to be dynamic. There are some people who are sleepwalking through life, they're dead even while they're alive. They're going through the motions of life. We are told, bahem, Be alive, be vibrant, be enthusiastic and energetic. Love what you're doing. Live life to its fullest. That's why God gave us this. Bahem, to really be alive is only when you're doing these things. God is the creator of the universe. He gave us the blueprint To find meaning and purpose and happiness and joy in life. V'chai Follow his mishpatim and chukim and you're really alive. Do it with vibrance. Do it with excitement. Do it with love. The Archaim has a comment here. The Archaim says that a person should not covet schar in this world, but rather recognize that it comes in the the next world. Where's the Archaim? On V'chai One second. He asks a series of questions again, and he says, A person who does uh, mitzvos, with with love, with energy, achieves merit in this world. Why? Because immediately their life is so meaningful. Their life is filled with happiness. Shabbos disconnects them from technology Kashras gives a sense of, of moderation Of diet, of self-control um, The laws of Lashnara Create an ethical society The laws of honesty in business and so on So If we apply and live these laws in this world Not only do we have the merit That is eternal in the world to come But our life is transforma- transformed in the here and now ba'omro v'chay vav. Why doesn't it say chay Why v'chay with the vav The Vav is to tell us that the the reward is both. If all you do is Meira, so then your Eschar is in the next world. Because you're living life Meira in this world, you're doing it, but it's a burden and it's scary and it's filled with fright and it's filled with fear. If you're doing it, with love, then you're getting the reward both in the world to come and in this world too. So, everything that, uh, that we do, we should want to get the reward in the world to come. And whatever benefit we have in this world should not be as a result of the schar for our good deeds because then it would earn and take away the merit in the world to come. And here I'll end by telling you a great pshat. The uh, Rav quotes this in his Sefer of Igarita. He quotes from Rav Elia Lopian who said it in the name of Rav Itzel Blazer, who said the following, We say in our benching, we ask God to bestow love and kindness to us God should give us abundance and success and blessing, salvation and parnasa and sustenance and we ask Hashem to give us compassion and life and peace, the and all good things. And how do we normally read the end of this bracha, the fourth bracha of the Amidah? V'choltuv li'olam ayichasreinu. And from all good, li'olam forever, ayichasreinu, never deny us from all good. But here, Rabbi Lopian quoted from, it's Blazer. no, read it, leolam, li'olam ayichasreinu. And the cult of Leolam, Leolam Habba, Ayah Hasrenu. We're asking for it. Give us all this Geshmaka good stuff in this world. Give me parnasa and give me Revach Vatsa, give me Hatzlacha, Bracha, Yeshua, Nechama. Give me all the Geshmaka things in this world, but liolam Olam, Hasrenu. When you do, let it not come out of my account, laolam haba. I'm not asking for it in lieu of. When I, where I want it, in Olam you'll never bench the same again. So it's not Li Olam forever Ayik but it's ali chasrenu, don't deplete, don't take it out from my account in the world to come. A very beautiful shot. Alright everyone, have a great week. Thank you.